Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today we talk with Busy Phillips, host of the late night talk show Busy Tonight. Phillips announced Sunday that Cable Channel E had canceled the show, which she hopes to find a new home for after it ends its run on the network next week. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke will talk about Hulu's Catch-22 and Amazon's Fleabag. Stay tuned. Busy Phillips, thanks for doing this. Yeah, I just told you. It's my favorite thing to talk about my favorite subject. (laughs) (laughs) Um... So on Sunday night, you tweeted that uh, Busy Tonight... I tweeted and I did Instagram stories, yeah. Yeah, you did Instagram stories, yes. Um, How did you find out that the show had been canceled? Um, I knew weeks ago. I knew about four weeks ago, I think. Um, And I found out because I was landing in Dallas to shoot some commercials for Michael's. I work with the craft store Michael's. I'm Mm -hmm. their spokesperson. Um, They're one and only that they've ever had. Um, (laughs) because <laughs> I'm obsessed with the craft store, Michael's. <laughs> um, and so I landed in Dallas and got a text from my manager saying, let me know when you're in the car. It was strange because it was, you know, like a Friday evening, Friday night. So you know it's like not going to – I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and then she said, I'm sorry, Biz, there's no good way to tell you this, but um, they're not going to continue with the show. And I was uh, devastated. And also just I felt a little bit like the the rug had been pulled out from underneath me. Um, you know, I've been in this business for a really long time, but this is definitely the first time that I've been on this side of things in terms of being an executive producer and dealing with networks and executives and, you know, listening to the things that they had said over the the course of the, you know, five months that we've been on air and before that, the year that we were sort of in business together. And so it didn't it sort of didn't add up to me. It felt very like out of nowhere. Um, but that is the fucking deal, man. And you just like, that's the business. I don't know what to tell you. So yeah, I, uh, I hung up the phone with her and I talked to my showrunner. I talked to, um, Eric Gurian. I talked to Tina Fey. I talked to my husband and my daughters and, um, and that's, and I ordered a tequila when I got to the hotel and, I shot a music video uh, in my room, <laughs> and then I, and then I went to bed and woke up the next morning and worked all day. And the day after that, so getting back to your Michael's endorsement deal, <laughs> um, yeah. No, uh, so what was so what was the rationale? Because I mean, it seemed like the show was getting traction with an audience that maybe does it doesn't always have these types of comedy talk shows sort of engineered to appeal to them. Right. I mean, look, we I had a very specific mission and an idea when I set out to make this show. And I think that um, truly um, our creative producerial team of Tina Fey and um, my showrunner, Casey St. Ange, and myself, I think that – and then all of the – 
women that work with us creatively. I think we've been insanely successful at what we wanted to do and what we had set out to do and sort of what our overall mission was for the show. And, um, you know, I, you're right. Like there are people aren't making this, this show is not being made. Um, and, uh, you know, people talk about like looking for white spaces in the market and then you're like, Oh wait, maybe the white space exists for a reason because, um, they don't give it a chance. <laughs> they pull the plug. Um, but ultimately we're at a really interesting time in the industry and, um, you know, it doesn't, take a person who is well-trained at looking at numbers to figure out that, you know, cable is a tough sell for millennials. Um, most of my friends are cable cutters themselves. Um, I'm one of the last remaining humans, I think, that I know that has cable, a cable package. Um, and people just aren't consuming their media and their television shows and their movies in the same way that they were even two years ago. And so, um, you know, I think there's a real disconnect in how people are watching things, when they're watching things, and how to quantify it. Because certainly, I think if you look at, you know, and our shows only only was on for a very relatively short period of time, six months, right? Um the sort of impact that we were able to have and really sort of, um, you know, permeate the, the no, like get through and cut through all the fucking noises. There's so much noise. There's so much programming. There's so many shows. And, you know, just, I had just like as an experiment or, you know, maybe just for my own sense of self or whatever, had one of our um, assistants at Busy Tonight pull and print out every piece of press that had been written about our show since the beginning. And the book is insane. I mean, it's like gigantic. And, um, and I think that people, I think it's interesting. I think that people think they were watching the show and they were fans of the show. And then you can look at the numbers on the E network and, you know, they definitely feel like the numbers were too low. For them. And yet when you talk about not just in the context of your show or in the context of cable television, when you talk about late night TV broadly, so much of what we hear is, you know, we want to use this content to catch viewers across all platforms. Mm -hmm. We want people to be watching the next day. We want it to be catching people on digital video so that we can get those young viewers on different platforms who aren't reaching us on linear TV. Right. So... And clearly, you were getting engagement on digital for sure. So, when you talk to the ne- when you talk to the network, if you've heard from the network since the cancellation, um, you know what? How do you square? How do you square what you just said with the fact that you were clearly getting a lot of digital engagement? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, because I think that there's a large part of, especially the television industry, that is still operating under very old school way of doing business and they're just all about these you know bottom lines and they're run by huge conglomerates that it takes you know weeks to get any sort of answer on being creative in terms of any way you know it's a it's like it's a whole new world so you know we can't I think that there's going to be sort of 
there has to be sort of a shift, right? And all of these platforms are emerging and people are trying to figure out different ways to monetize things. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that going back to uh, the original way that shows were sort of um, presented by a sponsor and having one you know, Ajax presents Busy Tonight, whatever, you know, underwriting the budget um, for the show and being able to know that people will see it, you know. There's just a, there's a disconnect in, in the monetization of it, I think, at this point because they're, they're, they're looking at these ratings, which like, well, I don't know what that even means at this point. I don't know why the fuck Nielsen or whatever hasn't figured out another way to quantify these things for advertisers, right? Because, um, I don't know. Also, like, if there's one thing your girl knows how to do, it's sell soap. So someone should <laughs> someone should have been a little bit more creative in terms of that. Um, but you know, I it's it's hard. I mean, I think that late night, truthfully, in terms of our like YouTube channel and things like that, we we simply lacked the amount of time to be able to. But we had great growth in our YouTube channels and subscribers and all of those things. But you can't, you know, you can't look at, you know, Fal- Jimmy Fallon's, you know, 13 million YouTube subscribers. Um, and then, you know, when he's had his show for however many years and it's on a major network and then be disappointed by my, you know, 150,000 subscribers after four months, you know, that's not comparable, I don't think. But then a lot of people, you know, obviously really felt like from following both my Instagram account and um, the Busy Tonight Instagram account that they were getting the clips and the content there. But then also, you know, from all of the press that was picked up from almost literally every show I did in the last six months, um, people would watch the clips on those Respective sites. I mean, the Shade Room view of my, like, white chicks dance-off had, like, four million fucking views. You know what I mean? And E can't e can't qualify that to their advertisers, I guess. You know, I mean, I would. But I, they didn't – they couldn't figure out a way to make a case for that or they didn't want to or whatever. It's fine. But, um, you know, so that's also, I think, the, the part of the issue in – the new media and the way that people are watching things is that, you know, just anecdotally speaking, I would say that people come up to me very, very, very regularly and say how much they love the show, how they think the show is amazing, how incredible the show is. And when I, if I have a chance, I say, oh, do you watch it on E? I'm 95% of the time they say, oh no, I just watch online or I watch. And so I don't know how they're watching it really. Do you know what I mean? Right. Or if they're just watching three minutes of an interview or the five minute clip and they believe that they are viewers of the show and they are. Right. They're just not viewers of the full length ad supported linear product that he is putting on cable every night. Correct. Do you feel like you got the right amount of support from the network? I mean, I don't know what you want me to say. I want to sell the show somewhere else. So yes, yeah. I think they did a wonderful job. <laughs> like I'm a great partner. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel as though there were other ways that other things that could have been done. 
Um, and we really were open to, on our side, we really wanted to be a collaborative and figure out the best way to get to drive people to the actual show. But, you know, five weeks in when we got moved to 11 p.m. and we were told that this was a great thing because it was going to help build our audience. And within basically a week, we were it was very clear that that was not the case. Um, you know, it didn't occur to me until, until much later, like four weeks ago, that, oh, maybe maybe they weren't trying to build the audience at 11 p.m. Oh, oh shoot. Okay. Um, you know, it's hard. It's difficult. It's been a learning experience. So well, taking the show out now, you, you said mm-hmm. um, from the get-go that you wanted to find another home for the show. Um, you know, how optimistic are you? What kind of feedback have you been getting from the, you know, the buyer community? I mean, it's incredible. Like the feedback from truly like everyone has been overwhelming, especially, I mean, this week has been a little bit wild for me personally and professionally, obviously, but, um, you know, the feedback is all sort of the same, which is when I found out that the show was not going to be returning, um, I, you know, I've been working in this business for a really long time and I called, I called some people that were not involved in the show, but people who are, you know, heads of networks and, um, you know, big producers and things, um, just because I wanted some perspective and I knew that these people who had known me forever would give me the real. And also, you know, I don't have to do this, you know, which is another thing. So, um, and every person that I called weeks ago had the same sentiment, which was what you're doing is unique. There is sort of a glut of these other kinds of shows. You're providing something to an audience that is not served or is incredibly underserved. And it's really fucking good. And it's only just started to kind of like hit its stride, which makes sense because it's our five month, you know, mark at this time, like a month ago, you should try to move it. You should try to move it somewhere else. I mean, the problem is real estate and the problem is um, some of the streaming services, some of the bigger streaming services feel as though they took a swing at a topical talk show and it didn't work out for them. And so they're a little bit gun shy about it. Um, and, And so that's frustrating because I think, again, the swings that they were taking were very similar swings to other, you know, cable networks and other shows that were on. And and I think that our show is just wholly different. Um, but so for me and our team, I guess it's been more about trying to be thoughtful in terms of what makes the most sense and, and where our audience is going to be able to find us and, you know how they want to watch us. Um, So it's interesting. I mean, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not overly, hugely optimistic, but because I just know the reality of all of this stuff. Um, But I think that there's something, maybe, somewhere. When you you went out to create the show... um, and create something specifically for this, you know, you called it an underserved audience. What were the things that you knew that you wanted to do that you felt like no one else was doing? Well, 
you know, it was a little bit just born out of my own mission in the last several years of trying to <laughs> topple the patriarchy in through my art and in whatever subversive way that I can. And uh, and I think that I you, – you can read any of the articles that I did around the time when, you know, my Instagram took off. Um, I was the most surprised by what people were responding to, which was me. And I – had for a very long time insisted that I was just an a- like an actor and I had no desire to be a personality and um I think that with all of the success of Instagram I I realized that I had to you know lean into the thing that I think had made me very uncomfortable for a long time but that I got because of Instagram got way more comfortable doing and turned out I was really good at. And that was, you know, connecting with people. And I, you know, looked at the landscape. A daytime talk had been suggested to me and I had filled in for Kelly Ripa many times um, and uh, and then hosted with her when she was looking for a co-host. And I love that space, um, the morning space and the daytime space. But I did just feel this unfair imbalance in nighttime television. And I was just coming from a personal experience of being, you know, a younger-ish mother where I would put my kids to bed and I would be ready to watch something and I love pop culture. I love commentary on pop culture, but I like it to feel good. I don't want it to feel gross or make me uncomfortable. Um, and there was there nothing for me, nothing that spoke to me and nothing that I wanted to watch that entertained me. And, you know, so I just would watch reruns of friends. Um, that just became my life. So <laughs> it's a lot of people's lives right now. It is. But like people are looking for but this is the thing. Like the time is scary. It's a it's a scary time. That's not you don't have to be I mean that's a bipartisan thing to say. It's a fucking scary time. And so at the end of the day, I didn't really want to listen to the same jokes about the horror of this world. I'm going to start crying. It's just terrible. And I wanted to be, I wanted something nice and fun. And so I was like, well, I don't see it. So why don't I just make it? And and I love celebrities. Like, I love it. I love this business. I love movies. I love television shows. So it, it just felt like a very natural thing. Like, of course I should do this, right? I love talking to people. I love talking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You talked a couple nights ago about your abortion. Oh, yeah. And about the uh, bill just passed in Georgia. (laughs) Did I? (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Um, First of all, it it speaks to what you were just talking about because you talked about this thing very personal and very serious. And then you do this almost intentionally hard pivot 
to the Met Gala, mm-hmm. and then you basically provide comment on how that's being a woman, right? Right. Is giving a shit about both of those things. Right. Um, right. So what, aside from just the news and the horror show of seeing that news mm-hmm. about that bill being passed, what compelled you to to go there and have that conversation with your audience and then extend it into sort of the the nature of what you do as a TV personality? Well, um, I think that there is value to caring about things <laughs> that range from women's reproductive rights to avocado face masks. You know what I mean? And I think that like a bitch contains multitudes. <laughs> and, you know, I say that about myself a lot. And But the truth is um, when uh, – when Georgia passed the bill in the Senate, it was four weeks ago. We've been waiting for the governor to sign to sign the bill. Um, I had already written about my abortion in my book. Uh, didn't it did not get picked up really in all of the other, I guess, sort of salacious celebrity gossip in my book. That's the stuff that got thrown into the whirlwind of the ether of the horribleness of the internet and my abortion got like buried and um, which was fine. I didn't, I mean, I wasn't writing it to be for shock value. I was writing it because it was a thing that happened to me and it was an emotional thing that happened to me and a thing that has really impacted my life. Um, And uh, so in a way that had, that prepared me for the show this week so when that Senate passed the bill four weeks ago, I said to Casey, my showrunner, I'm going to do, I want to do an opening monologue about it. The timing was weird, though, because the governor hadn't signed it into bill yet. Now, Ohio, Georgia just became the sixth state to pass such a law. Um, this week, there were a few things that happened. Um, in Ohio, there's a case that had been publicized widely publicized the day actually that that fucking governor signed the bill in in georgia um the case came out about the 11 year old girl who was raped by a man in his 40s i believe and she's pregnant and because ohio also has a similar bill uh she is unable to get an abortion um my daughter is the same age and she is a child and I don't even think she could carry a baby I think you know it, I don't know how that would even be possible um, but the horror of that thought um, and then the governor signing that bill uh, I felt like I had no choice to but to say something and you know we we try to be sort of um, a little apolitical in our in our show. We always sort of have had the intention of, like I said, being subversive in even in our feminism, and because I think that we can see that 
people believe things very strongly. And um, if they feel like you're preaching to them or you're telling them that they're wrong, they will shut down. And so I've always thought about it in terms of sneaking ideas in that you should expect more and you should want more and you should ask for more as a woman. And, you know, anyway, um, so I had been thinking a lot about what I would say when it, when it came time. And, and so I had already written a very long thing and Casey, my showrunner is so smart and she was like, you know, I think you keep it short. And I think these are the things. And so I sat, I sat and tried to, you know, rethink. I mean, the, the most important thing to me always was just the statistic is one in four and people think they don't know anyone and you know me. And I just wanted to humanize it. Um, and, you know, I, I wish... Tina Faye actually texted me this morning and she was like, you should um, start like a hashtag thing. She was like, she's so funny. She like, is not on social media in that way, you know? So you should do like a hashtag thing where you say, you know, hashtag, you know me. Because I think, I I don't know, maybe, maybe I will. I don't know. I I just, I've been overwhelmed by the response in the last uh, 24 hours. And, um, you know, certainly, I mean, certainly online, um, by the support, because I was I was ready for the all the other stuff, and sh- and certainly like you know there have been some people that have, you know, whatever, called me names on Instagram, but um, it really doesn't even affect me. It's so interesting. Um, but the support has been overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive, um, and I don't know. That's not why I did it. I did it for that little fucking girl. Like for that eleven-year-old girl, that's it. I just can't. I can't even fucking imagine. Jesus Christ. Anyway. So. The. What you said. Yeah. At the top of the show there. Um, you know me, and the thing that mm-hmm. Tina suggested yeah. to you. It speaks to this idea that the show is based in a personal connection with your audience that, as you said earlier, maybe you weren't anticipating when you first got on social media. Mm-hmm. But it's clearly something that exists, even right. based on the announcement that the show was canceled, mm-hmm. the yeah. reaction to <laughs> the monologue that you did. Yeah. Um, so what is it that, what is it about you <laughs> loading this question so hard. What wow. is it? What is it about you that mm-hmm. you feel like people are connecting to in that way? Fuck, I don't know, man. Um, maybe I, if I could figure it out, I'd like give a class and become Tony Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that we're just at a particular time and the world where everybody is kind of searching and and people get sick of the artifice and they get sick of watching people trying to be something that they maybe not are not you know feeling like 
so hard to even tell like what's the truth anymore you know lies are so pervasive and I'd fucking had it like you know I just fucking had it and so I started to just be as truthful as I could with everyone all the time not in a mean way not like you know that doesn't give me license to be a fucking bitch or asshole or whatever but like just my own truth you know and I think once you I think people respond to that I think people really respond to that and so you know and then and then also it's like sort of weirdly like the perfect confluence of like that I'm struggling and trying my hardest and um have these kids and this life and but then also, like, I get all the fun stuff, too. I get to go to the Oscars with my best friend, Michelle Williams. You know, I get to go to these fancy places. I go on great vacations, you know. And so there's there's the the kind of, like, wish fulfillment part of it mixed with the she's just, like, me and my best friends part of it. And I think that – and then I think that underneath all of it, you know, is my, is the way that I handle all of the fun stuff in the same way that I handle all the stuff that's not, that's just life, you know? Right? Yeah. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. It's the same thing as talking about, talking about the Georgia law and then talking about the Met Gala right. in the same breath. Right. Exactly. A bitch contains multitudes. <laughs> that can be the name of this. <laughs> I should get it on a t-shirt. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's the thing, you know, and, and. And and no person is all one thing, right? I mean, well, maybe someone is. <laughs> I don't can think of one person in particular. <gasps> oh boy, what a time! It's fucking weird. It's fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm really like the the bottom and top line <laughs> of all of it <laughs> is that, um, man, I'm happy that I did this show and and the way that it's all happened and and I'm really proud of it I think it's I think it's pretty dope Izzy thanks again thank you so much Catch 22 an adaptation of the classic 20th century American novel by Joseph Heller will premiere May 17th on Hulu that same day, Amazon will debut the second season of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag. Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke talked about both shows. Today we're talking about two highly anticipated shows, one new and one a return. The first is Catch-22. This has been heralded as sort of George Clooney's big return to TV, but as we're going to talk about a little bit, he is far more in a producer role than a star role. Um, and obviously this is a pretty significant piece of work that's being adapted and, according to many, a really ambitious one because the book is tricky in a lot of respects. The book is really tough. Yeah. And so, Dan, you not only reviewed this for us, you read the book again for us before you reviewed it. So would love to hear from you about how they did adapt it and if you think it was successful. Yeah, I will say in reading the book... Uh, which I did before screening the six episodes of Catch-22 that exist, I felt kind of this sense of concern because 
it is so packed with incident with kind of very densely packed jokes that it seemed to me kind of as though it would be very difficult to prize out an overarching plot as well as to make these jokes that are kind of built on language cascading upon itself uh, into dialogue that real actors could deliver. I will say that the actors are incredibly able. Those who are tasked with the most of the book's kind of witticisms are the military superiors, played by Hugh, Hugh Laurie, um, Kyle Chandler, and George Clooney in the smallest uh, role of the three. He appears. He does not appear in every episode and only in brief scenes as kind of this threatening authority figure. Uh, the other challenge the novel presents is that its central character, Yosarian, is kind of this inert, often mute person who absorbs everything happening around him. He's kind of the set of eyes through which we see the chaos at this military base during World War II. However, I think that actually works to the show's benefit because they found uh, Christopher Abbott, who's an incredibly interesting uh, emerging actor who's who was on Girls and has done a lot of work in independent film and in theater. And he makes the process of observation and kind of mute, mournful uh, processing of this terrible situation he's in at, as the mission count keeps increasing. He keeps it interesting and novel and there's a million different spins he puts on the process of kind of mournfully gazing out out the window of his plane so he's the reason to watch it to me yeah that's that's interesting i always want to ask this question of tv shows in general um but adaptations in particular does it kind of answer the question of why are they adapting it now like what makes it interesting for this to be on now. I, I, I would say that's one of the biggest shortfalls of this. I think that the show is kind of at odds with its fundamental nature because Catch-22 is a novel written by kind of an angry young man, as Joseph Heller was at the time. It was his first novel. It's written in the kind of, you know, barbed style that's really available at the beginning of your career. George Clooney is sees in it a kind of premium property that can be burnished, a great American novel. But he doesn't pick up, I think, he can't congenitally pick up. He's, you know, Mr. Establishment at this point in his career. And I think he doesn't quite hear the tonalities in it of rebellion. And I think he's made it into a very handsome, glossy period piece, mm. which has little relevance either to the novel or to... I wasn't really looking for this to have much to say about life in 2019. It definitely doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine. But it's just one more example of how it doesn't really add up to a ton. Mm. I think Abbott's good, but I think that that's kind of where it begins and ends in some ways. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, this is another example of Hulu being pretty ambitious with its new slate of programming. I feel like every other week I'm seeing something that I wasn't quite expecting from Hulu. This I certainly didn't expect from them. And hearing that it's kind of a more straightforward period piece doesn't exactly surprise me. Yeah. It's interesting because I think of Hulu as a place that has a bit more of an identity than Amazon or Netflix. And that identity is kind of rooted in what's been historically its scrappiness, that it is kind of 
the one that punches above its weight despite having shallower pockets. But I was surprised to go back and remember that this wasn't commissioned by Hulu. This was a deal that came together through a production company Mm. and Hulu was the top bidder on it, which is also, I think, how they got the upcoming Little Fires Everywhere with uh, Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon. So I feel as though they're kind of pushing themselves into the big leagues with these really ambitious and expensive projects. Like The Handmaid's Tale was one thing. There are not as much as I love Elizabeth Moss, Clooney or Reese Witherspoon level stars on it. And it's kind of in some ways less expensively produced. Evidently, like when you look at it, Mm -hmm. this is gorgeous to look at. It's obviously a lot of money and effort went into it. Um, Really top shelf talent, even though I'm, I can be dubious of the results. I can acknowledge that it was made by very, very highly placed people. And it's kind of impressive to me that Hulu's a real player in this way. Um, speaking of streaming series that were acquisitions uh, and and things that I think will potentially be players in this year's Emmy race. I hope so. Well, uh, we have Fleabag, uh, Phoebe Wall- Waller-Bridge's comedy based on uh, her autobiographical stage show. Uh, the first season was a beautifully self-contained piece of work. Those who viewed it may have yearned for more, but also kind of understood that this was the end of the story until it wasn't. And now (laughs) we have six more episodes, which you have seen. Yes. And which you are, I I gather, an admirer of. Oh, I loved them. And I straight up didn't want a second season. I thought it was a mistake. I thought the first season was perfect as it was. I thought it ended exactly right. I... I'm a big proponent of things ending in general mm-hmm. um, and kind of loved that Phoebe wanted it to end. Like she had talked about how she was asked if there was more to the story and she, initially she said no and she had moved on to Killing Eve. But the reason why she left Killing Eve before season two is because she then did think of a way to bring Fleabag back and decided to step away in order to do that. And see, having seen the results, uh, it's it was so worth it, and I should tr- should trust her from now on. Um, the second season is fantastic. Uh, it's really unexpected uh, the way that she had described it when initially sort of teasing what it was going to be about before the episodes were even out was that it was about Fleabag finding her faith. Uh, that is really vague, and um, in true Fleabag fashion, it does not happen in any of the ways you might expect, but it does involve, uh, it flashes forward a bit in the future from the first season and involves the, her family sort of getting to know this new, uh, young Catholic priest who is also unexpected in his own way. And Fleabag, which is the name of her character. She never has revealed the name of her character. And I will spoil this for you. She does not reveal it still. Uh, she is known as Fleabag. Uh, it's sort of about her getting her life together in a way that I did not totally expect and really admire. Um, I think it was she was walking a really tricky tightrope, especially because that first season was so good and she had to, in some ways, justify why she was doing a second season. And I really think she did, not just for her own character, but also for the character of her sister, who I love, played by um, Sheehan Clifford. Um, And also 
now more people will know Olivia Coleman from her Oscar win for The Favorite, who plays their horrible godmother, their horribly condescending godmother, who's also only known as Godmother. It's weird, only her sister has an actual name. Uh, but yeah, I really, all six episodes are going to come out all at once on Amazon. I, I really took my time watching them because it felt to me, and again, I was wrong the first time, so maybe I'm wrong the second time. It really felt to me like this was Phoebe Waller-Bridge saying everything she wanted to say with this character and without spoiling what the ending is it feels very final I'm a really big fan of the first season of Fleabag and I kind of sidled up very slowly to watching uh, the second season because the understanding I have is that this time it's for real it really is ending really and I very recently watched the first just the first episode and I was struck by so many aspects of it but I think in memory of the first season, I think just about the Fleabag character, just because the performance is so titanic. She's the creative force behind the show. She has succeeded on other fronts since Fleabag. And I forgot how well every relationship in that family is drawn. It's like a little web where for, you know, the other four or five members of her family, they all have interesting relationships with each other are all kind of characters who have very obviously like very vibrant lives on their own. Coleman is the obvious example of just this performance that is so not big, but so carefully drawn and so thoughtful. And I'm very excited to watch the next five, but it's such a temptation to watch them all at once. And then that's it. Yeah, it's it's tough. I really, I was so sad to go into the finale knowing that this might be it, but... Um... The finale really blew me away. Um, and I think even just the premiere, which you've seen, it feels, the premiere in particular, you can see her stage roots in it. It feels so much like a play because most of it is takes place in the same restaurant. It's around the same table. Um, and it's so smart. I, I also recently saw her do her last run of Fleabag in New York and sort of seeing how she adapted it from stage to screen was really interesting. But... I think one of my biggest compliments when I'm reviewing anything is that is when the characters are specific and everyone in Fleabag is so specific. Um, you can feel the writing in a way where you, you know how she wrote it, but they also feel completely natural and that's such a hard balance to strike. So I think if anything, the second season of Fleabag really, again, proves just how good she is. I mean, it's kind of insane, her batting average at this point. I keep thinking surely she can't pull out something more interesting than what she just did and then she does so more than anything I came out of that finale um, not being sad that we don't have more Fleabag but just being really excited to see what else Phoebe Waller-Bridge does because I think whatever it is is going to be really fascinating yeah I mean there's so much more TV that she will be making I hope even after Fleabag Fleabag story is done and you know even beyond the world of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, there's always more TV where that came from. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Timothy Simons of HBO's Veep. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.